Well, I'm delighted to be joined today by Richard Lucas. Uh, Richard is the leader of the Scottish Family Party, uh, a former teacher and a campaigner for children and uh, the protection of children and for the role and protection of families in Scotland. Richard, welcome. It's great to be here. It's always good to chat with you, David. Yeah. Looking forward to our time together. So uh, we've got a lot. We've got a lot to get through, uh, and we'll, we'll come to the 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 political, the more party political scene maybe later on. I'd like to start off with some of the issues, and the, these are issues that have been central to to your campaign. So actually, for many years, and it's becoming ever more obvious that these are central issues for society as a whole, and are core to the attack on our society, and and the one that's perhaps got greatest traction recently in Scotland is the whole issue of, of sex education and the sexualization of our children and the the role of the state of state-run education of state education policy as the, as determined by John Swinney and others in in well one way of describing it would be grooming our children, certainly changing the way they view relationships and having huge effects on their relationships with family members and um, and any sort of traditional viewpoints that their families may wish to inculcate into their children. So we could start off with um, with the, the issue of sex ed and, and where you see Scottish policy as being right now uh, regarding the, uh, the education of our children in what's termed, I think, health and well-being is the, is the phrase that's used. Yeah, I, just where do you start? Where do you start? You could write a book about it. In fact, I have written a book about it, which, which uh, you can get from the <laughs> Scottish Family Party. There's a huge amount. If we start from the very beginning, I find it's a helpful place to start on this topic. And by the very beginning, I mean nursery. Now, you may well be thinking, sex education, nursery, surely, surely these things have got nothing to do with each other. But yes, they have. Because in nursery, the Scottish government, for example, recommends a book that explains how to make a baby. And it's like a recipe book. It says what ingredients you need to make a baby. And the ingredients you need are not a man and a woman, uh, like in love, married or whatever. Nothing to do with that. No mention of men, women, mums, dads. You need three ingredients to make a baby. You need sperm, egg, and uterus. And you can source those ingredients from whoever you like. It doesn't matter who they are. You've just got to get those three ingredients, put them together, and you can, someone who wants a baby or a group of people who want a baby can make a baby. So that's, that's undermining the whole idea of, of some natural family right from the very beginning in nursery. And everything that, that comes after then is sort of a development of that. But you can see it as just a direct attack on the norm of natural family life. So we're going to have generations of children brought up on this ideology that completely un undermines structure and the traditions uh, that have enabled societies to flourish throughout human history. Well, I mean, this, this is astonishing. I actually didn't know that. Mm -hmm. So we're talking to three, four-year-olds, right? So this is yes. the age. Yeah. I mean, beyond, beyond the disruption to their view of the family, which must be profound, um, mm -hmm. this could have extremely destabilizing psychological effects. I mean, this is information that at three and four, when we were growing up, three and four-year-olds had no idea and no one thought it was appropriate to tell them about it. And in the long-term developmental effects of this type of information, indoctrination, yep. Um, yep. Must, must be, well, at the very best unknown, but it would strike me as, 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 a, huge, as a huge potential concern. It's, it's plant, that's exactly right. It's planting the seeds of confusion. I've just pulled the book off my bookshelf here. I mean, it talks about, uh, for example, that there's pages that say some people have a uterus and some people don't. Then there's like cartoon images of these sort of amorphous uh, beings with no, no indication of their sex at all. So some people have a uterus, some people don't. So you can just imagine a little boy in the class putting his hand up and saying, do I have a uterus? I, I don't know. The book doesn't tell me. There's no indication. I've never even heard of this before. This is the first I'm hearing about it, and it's just saying some people do and some people don't. I mean, it, it's like it's undermining. It's not adding to the knowledge of the young people. It's taking away from their knowledge, and it's um, undermining their ability to understand the way things work 
in the future. And it's really sinister. It's total capture of the system by radical activists. So I was I was listening to a chap called uh, James Lindsay, an American commentator on on these matters, discussing this, and he was he was going through sort of the early childhood mental development and how children make sense of the world, and one of the things is they they categorise things. So one of the first categories would be child and adult. There's a clear difference there. So that, that's being blurred, as we'll come to that. And another one would be man and woman. So you end up with uh, boy, girl, man, woman as, as four of the first things that a child can sort of differentiate as he, tries, as he or she tries to uh, understand the world around them, which is all new to them. And they're, they're, they're drawing lines, they're drawing boundaries, they're, they're coming up with categories so that they can, they can form a framework of understanding. So if, if that's correct, what you've just described is pulling the rug from under that process and, and pulling the rug from under something that is very fundamental to child development could have horrendous consequences. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what these activists want, they want young people growing up thinking, sex, gender, whatever, these things have not really got any meaning, they've got no importance, everything's fluid, you take your pick, you make it up as you go along, there's nothing fixed. And so if you want people to grow up believing that, you've got to start right at the beginning and take away the foundations, if you like. When, as you were saying, when they're putting in the, the fundamental building blocks of their understanding of sex and gender and relationships and procreation, We've got to get in right at that early stage and undermine it to, to prevent a healthy understanding of these issues developing. I mean, it's extremely sinister. So, so move, moving on, that's nursery. Moving on to primary, what's happening there? The primary school five to eight year olds have talked about um, sexual reproduction, but that is just one of several ways of making a baby. So various artificial reproductive techniques are given equal billing for like heterosexual sexual intercourse. So they learn about like artificial insemination or whatever. We're talking five to eight-year-olds, five to eight. So so strong is the ideological drive that they can't even teach the basic biology of reproduction, which you really need that at age five to eight. I'm not sure you do. They can't present that on its own because no doubt that would be uh, you know, heteronormative or something. They've got to present these other ones alongside it. And the LGBT campaign slogans, you know, color in the rainbow flag worksheets, etc., that comes in. Again, in age five to eight, the first half of primary school into the second half of primary school, they're on to basically teaching them how to have sex. I mean, there's no other way of describing it. It's teaching the children how to have sex with pretty graphic and detailed descriptions to go along with it. Okay. Um, so that's nine, nine to 12, uh, and obviously well below the age of consent. And when we're talking about grooming by the state, don't just mean sexually, because you can groom someone into ideals, you can groom them into a cult. We'll maybe talk about that later as well. But there is a there is a, a major concern here that what you what what is actually being done is sexual grooming to to sexualize the children at a young age. The case in the media recently, where um, a sexual assault took place in a primary school immediately after a sex education lesson. So what one can assume that in the sex education lesson, the teacher was teaching the children how to have sex and how great it feels, how good it is. Then immediately afterwards, a couple of boys and they've got a girl in the, in, in the toilets of the school and a sexual assault took place, which, which anyone with any common sense would look at it and think, well, that's what's going to happen. If you're communicating to them, we think you need to know this at this age. Well, the assumption is we think you need to know it because this is something you're going to want to be doing. This, this is you know, an activity you're going to be wanting to engage in. So inevitably it happens. Inevitably it happens. But in terms of grooming, one understanding of grooming is where a person is interacting with, it, with a child with the view to engaging in sexual activity with them. Now, I think there have definitely been cases in Scotland where that has been exactly what teachers have been doing through sex education. So that has very definitely happened. But more broadly, trying to, to lead them into an openness to sexual activity at a very young age, that is very definitely the official policy. It's all towards taking away the barriers, breaking down the barriers, 
you know, leading children into exploring their sexuality uh, in, in, you know, in, in safe ways, as they might call it. In other words, engaging in sexual activity at whatever age the young person decides that they want to. And then, well, to, to complete this whistle-stop tour of uh, Scottish education, um, this, that, that's all before we get to secondary school. But once we get to secondary school, and in Scotland, it's, it, the, the age of consent is officially 16. Functionally, it's 12. Mm -hmm. if, if certain circumstances apply, there'll be no prosecution uh, for, for sexual activity above the age of 12. Um, so what's happening in secondary schools? In secondary school, they're, they're, um, at the beginning of secondary school, they're teaching that pornography is perfectly normal, natural, and healthy. So if you want to watch pornography, that's, you know, that's just normal. That's no problem. Uh, they teach about any and every sexual practice, which I don't even want to, uh, want to talk about here, including some probably the not, viewers are not even thinking about, some really uh, obscure things. They're just presented to the young people as, you know, these are things on the menu that you might like to choose from. Children are taught that they've got the right to have illegal underage sex. And they're told that effectively the age of consent is 13, because the police won't prosecute unless the age gap is, is too big. But they're definitely given the message, say you've got the right to have illegal underage sex. In other words, you've got the right to explore your sexuality and you know, engage in safe and pleasurable uh, consensual sexual activity, even though it's illegal. Uh, which again, it's even too bizarre to imagine a government could get itself in that position where it's, it's teaching children that it's okay to break the law. But that is, that is the case. And the nature of the materials is often vulgar and, and trivializes, including all sorts of trivial, like, uh, basically saying uh, lesbians have better sex. That's the message in one video. And in another video, it basically says, that, uh, you know, the word is basically that anal sex is more pleasurable than vaginal sex. So not just saying, you know, lesbian and gay people exist, but it's positively promoting and saying, this is something that's probably better, more pleasurable. In other words, to the young people, well worth giving a try. You know, nowadays, there are a huge number of young people class themselves as bisexual or you know, sexualities on, on, on a spectrum. So in the light of that background, to be giving these messages to young people is effectively encouraging them to experiment with their sexuality, be that heterosexuality or, or homosexuality, uh, in a way that's detrimental to their future relationship prospects. Yes, and indeed to their health. I mean, the, one of the things which we've heard about for many years, even before the age of video, which is much more problematic, is the addictive nature of pornography. And uh, there, are, uh, there are many testimonies out there for the, the, the uh, horrendous and sometimes lifelong, certainly decades-long problems uh, people have had uh, from being addicted to pornography. And uh, you've then got something like anal sex, which has got horrendous medical complications. Um, Presumably, these are not being discussed. Are, are the risks of these behaviours actually given appropriate billing? So uh, they're not appropriate. I mean, they're barely mentioned at all. Because the assumption always is that their message is harm reduction. We're teaching you how to do these things safely. So pornography is fine, but just be careful of the bad stuff. You know, having, for example, anal sex is fine, but just you know, but there's these ways you can make it a little bit more, a little bit more safe. But I've heard GPs, more than one, I've heard GPs reporting that the number of girls reporting with basically injuries caused by anal sex is, uh, is just you know, exploded recently. It's, it's a huge problem, uh, inevitably. With pornography, I find it fascinating. Research has been done where you take, take a group of men, divide them into two, half of them watch lots and lots of pornography, the other half don't. Then at the end of them, you ask them their views on various types of sexual crimes such as rape, and as you would expect, the ones who've been watching lots of pornography, not violent pornography, like you know, mainstream pornography, the ones who've been exposed to a large amount of pornography are more likely to say that rape and sexual assault is really not such a big deal. So even from the Scottish government's own standards, their own values, 
they should be utterly horrified to be endorsing something to young people that tends to lead to those sort of views, those sort of values. But they do. But they do. I mean, it's just a just a bizarre contradiction. Their rhetoric is so fanatically strong on these issues, but they can't be consistent to it. And this this will take us to other areas of of modifications to how children think, uh, all of which comes from a similar political source, uh, you know, the cultural Marxism political source. So one is one is queer theory, which is related to what we've been discussing. So maybe you could say a few words about how you've encountered that and what you think that what form that's taken in Scotland. And and the other one is critical race theory. Um, are these things that you're seeing as, as being problematic in the Scottish education system? Yeah, I mean, the whole system has been captured by activists that have got this ideology. So I mean, schools are the tip of the iceberg, I and mean, behind it, you've got the government policy, you've got Education Scotland, you've got the General Teaching Council of Scotland, you've got the teacher training institutions. So it's, I call it the blob, just the, the, the huge establishment that all think the same and uh, just push their, their agenda without any hesitation because it's never challenged virtually. But in terms of queer theory, that, so the idea that everything's fluid, everything's on a spectrum, gender and sex are unrelated to each other, that's regarded as a foundational truth to teach children in Scottish schools, right from nursery all the way through. There's, there's no discussion about it. This is not something to write a debate on when, when you're doing your hires in you know, religious and moral education or whatever. It's not something to write essays about or discuss. It's a fact to be taught to children all the way through. Well, yeah, this is where we get into, is, is what we're dealing here, what is, uh, what is the nature of the thing we're dealing with here? Because that's not a matter of informing people. And that's not a matter of even giving multiple sides of a complex issue, leaving the harm that, that we've just discussed aside. And it's certainly not anything that could be described as scientific. What we're talking about here is inculcating an agenda. This is cult-like indoctrination. And it starts to look more like a religion because you can't question it. It's a belief system. If you question it, you're a heretic. If the child in the school questions it, then that's really problematic. Not only is the child a heretic, the, the family must be, must be transmitting that heresy to the child. And don't know what sort of reaction that would get from the authorities, but increasingly, I think it would there would be one. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So you, the the nature of of the ideas that are being communicated here uh, start to look like a substitute religion. Is that? Do you uh, think that's a valid statement? Uh, that's absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. If you go to an assembly in an average Scottish school. And look at the values that are behind it. It used to be they would sing a hymn and then you have a Bible story, draw some moral from it. Whereas now it's more likely to be, you know, this is our article from the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. Or, or the other thing it would be this week is Transgender Visibility Week. It's Black, it's, you know, it's Black History Month. It's LGBT History Month. So instead of having what, what used to be the traditional Christian calendar, giving structure and meaning to the school year. There's now this succession of special days, weeks, and months that are basically putting forward, as you say, a culturally Marxist agenda. They just go through the issues that come under that umbrella one at a time, and that forms the curriculum in terms of sort of moral and philosophical education. I heard a story just recently. I heard lots of stories about what goes on in schools. But one where a pupil expressed an opinion that was at odds with um, the sort of progressive mindset, and the teacher turned on the pupil and was very aggressive, actually swore at him in front of the class and said, you know, don't you ever say right whatever, this sort of thing again. You know, there's no place for this in the school. And a complaint was made to the school. The complaint didn't get through the school's uh, like spam filter initially because the person complaining put in the swear word that the teacher used in the complaint. So it did eventually get through. But the screen, you know, they just closed ranks. So, oh, no, oh, no, it didn't really happen. It was all made up. It's complete nonsense. I mean, you know, we're talking about honest, straightforward children here who just put forward a view 
And that's what's happened here. The friends confirm it. But it happens routinely in Scottish schools. It's real hostile territory for any child who doesn't go with the flow on these issues. When we start to dig into the origins of this, um, the origins of queer theory, and queer theory, queer theory is an attack on, on any sort of boundary, on any sort of structure, on anything that's normal, anything that's normal. In fact, we've actually had uh, homosexual men come and contact the column, and, or, and we've also seen writing in, in, in they've, they've published, where they have gone and tried to get engaged with the LGBTQ community to campaign for gay rights and found themselves ostracized by the alphabet people because they weren't queer enough, because they were men who liked men and knew what men were, and, and that wasn't acceptable. All boundaries had to be broken down. There could be no such thing as a man and a woman. It all had to be some, something else. Um, so this is the nature of the attack, very fundamental. And to bring that into young children will, have, will be hugely destabilizing. But when you mm -hmm. dig into the, the, the origin text for this, things like um, it was uh, Gail Rubin uh, did a, 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 an essay called Thinking, Thinking Sex, I think it was called. And, and this looked into all of the sexual politics issues. And it was one of the foundational uh, works that, that gave rise to queer theory. So this is what's underpinning what's been run out in Scottish schools. And there was open discussion of intergenerational sex, which means paedophilia. So there's, a, there's also a huge concern that that's the direction of travel. But one of the issues is that all boundaries need to be broken down. This is the, the ethos of the, 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 the ideology that's been, been communicated. Uh, so you can't have men and women, you've got people who happen to have a uterus. Um, but one of the other boundaries is the boundary between childhood and adulthood. That seems to be under attack as well. And, and I know you've, you've found evidence in this from Scottish academia. Maybe you could just outline what's going on there. Yeah, this is a fascinating area. I first came across it explicitly when I went to hear a uh, professor or lecturer from Edinburgh University giving a, a lecture on this topic. And he called it abolishing childhood. Which I, I thought that's just bizarre. What does it mean? Obviously, people have got to grow up. You've got to be five years old. You've got to be 10 year olds. How do you abolish childhood? He explains basically from a sort of uh, basically a Marxist perspective, I would describe it. He was saying the problem is the category of childhood well, is a social construct invented by the Victorians. Everything bad comes from the Victorians, according to these people. So it was invented by the Victorians, and it's just a means of oppressing people at a certain stage of their life. So adults are the oppressors, children are oppressed. So in order to, to protect children and to achieve what's best for children, they need to be liberated from the oppression of adults, adults such as teachers, their own parents. So this lecture was explaining that, for example, he thought children should be free to leave home to, or, or to like divorce their parents, if you like, to say, I don't want to use my parents anymore. At whatever age they felt they wanted to make that decision. He said he thought children should be able to vote at whatever age they could understand what they're doing. And he, he thought children should be able to choose whether or not to go to school. They should choose when they're going to get a job. They should be able to you know, be given a house, to live on their own with their friends at any stage. That they want to. At the end, I put my hand up and said, "Oh, I, I can see you're very consistent in your values. You just want children to be able to do whatever adults are allowed to do. How does this work out as far as sex is concerned?" And he said something like, I, I, "I'd really rather not to go there. I haven't really thought about that one. Can we just leave that question to one side?" I thought, "Well, obviously not. You can't just leave that question to one side because it's absolutely uh, fundamental." But uh, the Museum of Childhood in Edinburgh. There's a display board where you go, and that explains this idea again, that childhood was sort of invented by the Victorians. And it's some sort of negative thing that we need to move beyond. But this, this writing, this philosophy that adults oppress children, so what's best for children is to like, release them from this oppression of adult authority, uh, is very powerful. And it's extremely dangerous because it takes away from children exactly what they need. Children need adults to protect protect them, to guide them, to discipline them, to structure their lives, to protect them from all sorts of harms. But they just want to take that, take that away. I'm not sure if they really think that's what's best for children, 
or if they're just so obsessed with their political ideology, they have to force every aspect of life into their ideology and try and pretend that it fits. But, that, but that's sort of crazy sort of academic theory. If people sit around in universities talking about it in seminars, well, okay, it's a waste of money, but before it to actually be having huge influence in the education system for all children in Scotland is, is just scary. And the, the virtually total lack of pushback against it as well, I, I find terrifying. But the children's rights issue, UK column published an article I wrote about it. Um, apart from that, I haven't seen a single article published anywhere uh, in the media questioning this philosophy of children's rights. It's like a complete taboo. Yeah, children's rights are Trojan horse is the name of that article. And yeah, the, the idea that this idea to just to abolish childhood would obviously abolish the family with it. It would it would blow uh, a hole completely through all family relationships. Like, uh, it, you know, if, if the kid is throwing a strop or, or or misbehaving, and the adult says, "Go to your room," well, that's wrongful imprisonment, you know. So we've called the police. You know, the, you bring the state into everything, and and the whole thing becomes completely unworkable. Um, and the idea that it's Victorians, quaint. I mean, when I was a child, I thought as a child, and when I became a man, I put away childish things. That was in that was written in seven, uh, ninety. Something like 90 AD. That's the letter to the Corinthians. But what they're proposing is doing away with the, the, the universal understanding of every human society throughout human history. They want to do that away. It's, it's only since the 1960s that anyone's really understood anything. That, that's, the, that's the idea. Since the 1960s, we've really started understanding how to make the world a better place. And we need to keep heading in that direction. And if things get worse, then that just means we haven't gone far enough in the same direction. So we need to try and accelerate so-called progress, and it will all work out in the end. So it's frightening. You're talking about these things, and you're in fact projecting onto the parliament the Scottish sex ed uh, mm -hmm. graphics, and you ask memorably, you're asking questions in public meetings of John Swinney, the head of the, mm -hmm. the government in this in this area, about mm -hmm. the policy, and it was. It was um, very, very definitive that when you said in this public meeting, you started to quote from the Scottish government's own sex ed programme for 14-year-olds, the woman running the meeting, Ran, waving her arms to the front of the stage saying, you can't say that, we're live streaming. You know, you might offend people. Well, you're saying it to kids. You know, it, it, you made the point extremely well. So you, you're speaking out about this. And um, the response of the Marxist-led political establishment to this has been uh, interesting, hostile in some regards. But I noticed that one Green MSP said that, that she, was, she felt disgust at the Scottish Family Party. And I thought this was very interesting because, because the, the, the emotion that Hitler felt towards the Jews was... Uh, as I understand it, very largely disgust. So this I idea of disgust of someone with a different perspective or a different viewpoint, not I disagree, not I think he's profoundly wrong, but disgust, this is, an, this is a really totalitarian signal if, if, people, if you're disgusted by people that, that don't agree with you. Uh, they're not human beings, they are well, disgusting, so they are less human, you know, they're subhuman. It's very, it's a, it's a very dangerous, slippery slope. So you're being viewed with disgust. Uh, how does that feel? I would say you get used to it. You get used to it. I mean, it's just routine, particularly for, you know, from the Green Party, yeah, a lot, lot of the people in Scotland. If we do things on the streets, you know, you, you'll be, people are saying, you know, shame on you, you should be ashamed of yourself. It's disgusting what you're doing. It's hateful or whatever. But for me, it's water off a duck's back. But people who get involved in this sort of thing for the first time, they can be quite taken aback. And they realize there's actually a lot of people around with extremely fierce hostility uh, towards their views. And that, that can be quite, uh, that can be quite something to realize that. Uh, but, but once you realize it, the, the important thing is to get used to it. And then the other thing is to just be secure in what you believe. So when someone, if, for example, you know, you're, you're defending the lives of unborn children and saying, shame on you. You should be ashamed of yourself. What you're doing is disgusting. I just think you're really going to have to try harder than that because that, 
that attack on me, it's not remotely hitting home. There's nothing in it at all that's making me have second thoughts about what I believe. Nothing at all. But all it shows me is the fact that uh, a lot of people in our society, their moral system has got so distorted that they're utterly convinced that up is down and down is up and right is wrong and wrong is right. And they're absolutely certain of their viewpoint to the point where they feel they're justified and be really aggressive towards other people. Or the other way of looking at it is maybe they're not so sure of what they believe. And because they're not so sure of what they believe, they've really got to, to demonize the opposition because the last thing they want is any sort of intelligent exchange of ideas and having to reevaluate their, their position. So one way of holding at bay opposing viewpoints is to, is to demonize the people. And if, if you can say they're that they're the nasty crackpots, then maybe you don't need to actually answer the questions and, and rethink your own position. Well, it, it does show, I mean, we've seen this in the, in the field of, of Scottish government policy as well, because I was watching the No to Name Person campaign as it, as it unraveled and won. Um, and in fact, I was leafleting for the No to Name Person campaign and, and, and at the SNP party conference, which was quite a hoot, uh, and got mm -hmm. a little bit of the sort of uh, aggression that you've uh, you discussed there. Um, but what the, what the, what the No to Name Person campaign showed is the, the government had two lines of defence. Line, line one was the, the spiel, right? They had a position. Um, if, for abortion, the official position is it's healthcare. Uh, you must have free access to healthcare. Uh, women should not be intimidated going to uh, to uh, access healthcare, and um, these are essential rights on which our society is founded. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the the intellectual to stretch the meaning of a term, mm -hmm. the intellectual argument. So when you when you defeat that argument, right, by saying it's not healthcare, it's in fact killing a human being, which is manifestly not healthcare. Um, and the, the next response beyond that is one of aggression and, and, and name-calling. Uh, the No to Name Person campaign got this, or oh, you're just religious mm -hmm. extremists, which was yeah. quite a surprise to some of the atheist members of the campaign, but there we go. Um, and it, or or uh, you're trying to enable paedophilia, or you, you, you don't care if children suffer, and things like this. It's just nonsense uh, slurs and things. Mm -hmm. And when that didn't work, the really interesting thing is there was nothing else. Be yeah. Because the intellectual part of the debate is not actually genuine, it's very, very surface. And if you, if you look at the problems honestly, you would never come up with that conclusion. They can't look deeply at the problem. So it quickly goes to abuse. And then after the abuse, there's nothing else. It just cycles back. It cycles back to, well, here's the line. Well, the line hasn't worked. Well, we'll, we'll give you abuse. And it, and it spins around like that and just keeps repeating. It's a very strange thing to behold. But it applies to the government and, and to the activists almost equally. Um, to, to, we, we mentioned abortion, um, and we, we, we should just go into that, because this is another area which is getting highly politicised. And there's a, I think it's, again, a Green MSP has got a, a private member's bill into Parliament just now to, to create um, exclusion zones, no prey zones around abortion centres in Scotland because of the, well, certainly when I've witnessed them, very quiet and dignified protests outside abortion clinics to say that this isn't right and there's another way that it should be followed and we should preserve human life. Um, I, I know you've been involved in, these, these, uh, in, in this movement. Um, could you outline where you see uh, that campaign as standing at the moment and what threats you see coming from the state? Yeah, this is a fascinating area. I would say on UK column, a lot of what you do is you look at the standard mainstream narrative and say, this isn't necessarily the only way of looking at this issue. Um, you know, there's other ways of understanding this. I think if you look at this issue, it's a classic example where there's a mainstream narrative that is just total, total fiction. And the mainstream narrative that dominates the media, dominates the Scottish Parliament, is that these people, these sort of anti-abortion protesters, are harassing, intimidating, molesting, uh, being violent towards even, according to one MSP. Um, so they're really mistreating 
these these women just trying trying to get into the hospital. That's all they're trying to do, and they're facing these people, basically mistreating them, abusing them, harassing them. Therefore, we need a law to stop this happening. Whereas what's actually happening is you, you've got normally, you know, on average, you might be saying, you know, two or three ladies uh, holding a couple of placards with things like "We can help," for example, standing there quietly praying on the other side of the road from the clinic not speaking to anyone unless they're spoken to, they're just basically standing there silently or just quietly praying, uh, sometimes being spat at, having food thrown at them, having uh, abusive gestures and language used towards them, probably like once every 10 minutes on average. So just experiencing routine abuse and harassment. And yet the media narrative and the political narrative is the entire reverse. It is an absolutely black is white situation so anyone just listening to what goes on in the parliament and listening to the to what's reported in the media would get totally and utterly 100 percent the wrong impression of what is actually going on so having demonized these uh, these people I, i've been to the vigils as well people are basically just standing there praying uh, and speaking to anyone who comes and speaking to them so having demonized them like that that then justifies a law the law that's been proposed it's in there's no party in the parliament opposing this. Uh, but the punishment for a first offence, which could be, for example, like standing outside an abortion clinic, stand there praying, not holding a placard, not out loud, just praying in your own mind, but just standing there. And if the police came along and said, are you standing here praying? And you said, yes, then you'd be guilty. Do you know what the, uh, the recommended sentence for a first offence is that they've given? It's um, up to six months imprisonment. No, no fine, no, nothing about fines, community service, reprimands, warnings, none of that. First offence, up to six months imprisonment. I mean, what you have to do someone in the, in the street to get sent to prison for six months? If you went out of your studio now, David, the next person you found, you smack them one in the face. Do you think you'd end up in prison for six months? I don't think you would. No, first offence, no chance. No. Well, first offence. That's astonishing. Standing with your eyes closed opposite an abortion clinic praying, then six months, up to six months imprisonment for that. I mean, it's vindictive, isn't it? That, that's not any, that's not justified by any sort of theory of criminal justice. That's just vindictive. That's, we really hate these people and we want to throw the book at them. We want to see them uh, you know, mistreated to the greatest extent we can. That's the, that's the, I think the, 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 for a second offence, it's you know, up to two years imprisonment. So if you go, go and pray there again for 20 minutes after you've been out of prison, then up to two years imprisonment. I mean, it really is extremism running rampant in the Scottish Parliament. But the, the, the big problem, I think a lot of these things, I sometimes look at the Conservative Party and say it should be their job to be saying, this is really wrong here. What about liberty? What about freedom of expression? freedom of speech or but there's there's just nothing there now when it comes to what these vigils are doing if they were harassing people if they were intimidating people you know shouting at people as they walk past or standing in the way or whatever there are already laws that exist that could deal with that so it isn't actually to deal with that it's just an ideological attack on people who disagree the other side of it as well i mean roe versus wade in america that's put abortion on the on the world agenda so i think a lot of activists think all right abortions on the world agenda we need to show which side we're on so we we, we need to show that we're part of the pro-abortion battle so what can we do okay there's these couple of ladies down at the clinic they're holding up a placard saying we can help or whatever we'll go after them then we can feel we're part of the of the uh, you know the, the grand struggle as well so there's an element of that among us just what one more thing to add as well in America, there's a lot of centers that help pregnant women and try and offer them support and alternative to abortion, basically. So whatever the circumstances that might be leading a, a woman to be considering abortion, they're trying to see if they can help. Um, so the woman could go down a different path. These centers are getting a, a, attacked, physically attacked uh, in America quite commonly. But there's one opened in, in uh, Edinburgh quite recently. And already MSPs are really trying to demonize it. And one of them has described it as, as um, operating reproductive coercion. 
reproductive coercion. Yeah, the extreme nature of the views here are, are, are a sight to behold. I mean, I, I, I take the same stance as, as you do on, on the nature of abortion, and I have debated this a bit on your formats like Twitter. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the, the response is sometimes very aggressive. So one, one Scottish National supporter, Scottish National Party supporter, was, was having a go. I said, well, look, it's 13,000 Scots a year has been killed. Does this mm -hmm. not bother you? And and said, no, it didn't seem to bother them. I said, well, what's the what's the right number, right? Because you you you're saying that these oh. these protests are preventing women getting abortions. So you obviously want more. What's the right number? How many would you would you support? So well, it would depend on what the women would want. I said, well, how about how about fifty thousand a year? Would you would you support that? I said, yes, if that's what the women wanted, that would be fine with me. I said, that's every Scottish baby. Mm -hmm. That's all of them. That's yeah. national extinction. That's, that is utter genocide. Would you still support it? Went away. So the, the, the extreme nature of the views here. And of course, the, we get into this. It's, it's in Britain so far, it's 9 million uh, killed in the, in the womb. In America, it's 63 million. And of course, we're we're talking about well, there's not enough people. There's there's an aging population. We have to have immigrants coming in because we we don't have enough people to run the NHS. All of this depopulation is starting to become a major issue in the West. And of course, what's driving it? What's driving yeah. it is mass murder and unborn. Yeah, fear not there. The Scottish government's got a plan to solve population decline. Uh, the Scottish total fertility rate is down to one point two nine now, which is absolutely disastrous. During the one child policy in China, they just about managed to hammer their fertility rate down to 1.56 with the one child policy. Scotland's on 1.29. But the Scottish government's got a solution. And the solution is to offer fertility treatment to single women. So to so deliberately produce fatherless children. Uh, I assume on, on such a scale, that it's going to have an impact on the Scottish population. Uh, where do you start with that one? It's just so, so wrong. For a start, it's futile and ineffective. It's never going to make any significant difference. But to have that as a solution, so the idea of you know, encouraging families to have as many children as they actually would like to have, instead, of, so taking away factors that deter families from having as many children as they'd like to have, or encouraging more people to get married, so married people tend to have more, more children. Instead of those things, it's single women and fertility treatment. It is a very strange sight to behold. Now, in the greater scheme of things that make no sense, uh, we have Nicola Sturgeon refusing to define what a woman is, presumably because she's unable to do so, uh, but declaring herself a proud feminist. And Glasgow, I understand, is now going to be a feminist city. What does that mean? Uh, it means that Glasgow must have solved all of its other problems, I assume. And since there are no more serious problems to solve, <laughs> they've turned their attention to the uh, ideological nature of their town planning. So town, city planning in Glasgow, henceforth, will be conducted according to feminist principles. So where the roads go, what the parks are like, where buildings are allowed. And for example, they're going to make the streets more suitable for gender-fluid people. So positioning the lampposts and the seats uh, and all that sort of thing. They're going to bear in mind the needs of gender fluid people, which obviously we can laugh because it is so idiotic. It, it deserves laughing at. It, it is completely nuts. But the way I've described it, it's just like it's playtime for them. It's like student politics. They're not aware, it seems, that in this world, in Glasgow as a city, there are a lot of extremely serious problems that need to be addressed. But as far as the, the, a lot of the councillors are concerned, it's just playtime. Just whatever your hobby horse is, bring it to the parliament and waste some money, have people running around producing documents that are just entirely futile. They're not going to contribute anything at all to the city. I mean, the basic idea is, it's back to the old like, cultural Marxism. The idea is that men are oppressing women. So throughout history, men have, have designed cities. So they sat down and said, right, let's design Glasgow so it suits men and doesn't suit women. Ha, 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 that'll teach them. Let's use our power to make Glasgow a masculine-type city. So therefore, the women need to fight back and take the reins and make 
you know, even it's up a bit. So Glasgow is a bit more suitable for women. That's what, that's the way they think the world works. So everything's a zero-sum game. Everything's a power struggle. So they say it as, you know, the women and the gender-fluid people, whatever, taking back some power about the layout of the city. It's, it's just bizarre. Bizarre. And, and, and this, is, this is where I, I, some sort of understanding of, of, of the ideological background is, is very useful. Because this mm -hmm. gets to um, postmodernism, which is, uh, amongst others, Michel Foucault, um, a very questionable uh, man in terms of his personal morals, a uh, child rapist. Uh, he went to Morocco for child sex tourism. He was into um, some very, very nasty sexual practices with adults as well. Uh, and um, despite his brilliance in some academic academic fields, and and he outlined the fact, well, uh, in his view, there was no such thing as right or wrong. There was no truth in lies. You couldn't know anything. So all there was was power. So power becomes the 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 uh, the only aiming point that is left. Uh, power and groups. Uh, my group must have power. Your group must lose power. And as you said, a zero-sum game. Um, also in the uh, this kind of neo-Marxist line, you've got this idea of critical theory. We talked about critical race theory. Queer theory is a form of critical theory. And what this is, it's an unrelenting attack on, on the status quo. So we're going to tear down, we're going to tear down, we're going to tear down. And what their ideology suggests is that eventually, after a lot of destruction, what will be left will be the new utopia. It will just emerge, but they can't define it. They can't explain it. They can't say when it will emerge or how it will emerge. We've just got to continue destroying and criticizing what we've got mm -hmm. until what we're left with eventually magically turns into a utopia rather than hell on earth. And this is the nature of the belief system and this is the nature of how they operate. Even on mm -hmm. a national level, the Scottish government's always critiquing Britain, always critiquing Westminster but without any positive suggestion as to how to do things better. Very often, they're actually wanting to do just more of the same. Mm -hmm. um, so this, this is what I call critical jock theory. It's, it's, it's an un, unrelenting attack on the idea of Britain without any practical idea as to how Scotland could be better. Um, but just a belief that if you, if you vote for India, if you support our line magically in the future, for reasons which we can't explain right now, it will be better. The utopia will emerge. And you've got people like Mike Russell who've written about this. The nature of Scottish nationalism is it's going to create a practical utopia, his words. So it's very much where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. um, and, yep. and it is important to look at the individuals as well. So I want to finish off with one individual before we go into uh, onto other matters. And, and that's Dr. Colin Morrison. Uh, now, you, you've been key in highlighting his role in, in developing Scottish uh, educational policy and Scottish government policy in this area. So perhaps you could outline uh, what you've discovered about him. Yeah, fascinating. He was, he runs a little company called Task, a little consultancy. And the, the job of producing like, official sex education resources for use in Scottish schools, commissioned by councils, the NHS, the government, so the official Scottish sex education package, it was, the contract was given to his company. So he was put in charge of it, basically, because he, he's a doctor. His doctorate is in sex education, particularly for children with learning disabilities, but sex education. So I looked at the resources and thought, right, there's something far wrong here. Let's do a bit of research on Dr. Colin Morrison. So I found his PhD dissertation on, I think it was, uh, no, Glasgow University website. So there it was in all its glory. And I read it, I was just horrified by what I was reading. Because I would imagine the Scottish government would just think, oh, here's a man with a PhD in sex education. He must be the sort of man we want. But look at the things he's writing about. The main one I talk about, the main one I brought out, was that he wrote about the needs to break down the barrier between childhood and sexuality. This artificial barrier has been erected, apparently, between childhood and sexuality, probably by the Victorians. Everything bad was by the Victorians. So what we've got to do now is dismantle this barrier for the good of children, because keeping children and sexuality apart has negative consequences, whereas allowing children to explore their sexuality freely and openly is actually what's, uh, what's healthiest for them, which I totally and utterly disagree. And I would imagine 
a vast majority of adults in Scotland as well would utterly disagree with Dr. Colin Morrison's position. But he was put in that position of huge influence. And he also sits on the Scottish Education Council, which is a sort of elite group of advisors that help form education policy within the Scottish government. Now, the task agency and the sex education resources, I think their contract has expired. So the resources are now administered, uh, I think, by the NHS, actually, in Glasgow at the Sandiford Clinic. That, that's their address in any case. So Dr. Colin Morrison is not directly involved in that. At first, the thought crossed my mind, have the Scottish government finally come to their senses and thought, well, what have we done here? We don't want someone, we can't have someone with these values overseeing you know, the, the sex education of children in Scotland. But no, that's not what happened. I think just the contract ran out. So he's, he's, uh, he's not involved anymore, but he's still on the, the Scottish Education Council. I wrote to the government twice and said, right, here are some quotations. This is what this man believes. I don't think he's suitable for the job. What do you think? And they replied saying, well, he was selected by a committee and we have a range of views represented in the Scottish Education Council. Like completely ignoring any of the content that are raised. So, so if I'd written to them saying, you know, the bloke's a Nazi, it says he, you know, he says he heads black people and he goes beating up gay people every weekend. You probably get the same reply. He was selected by a committee and we have a range of views uh, represented on the uh, on the Education Council. No acknowledgement whatsoever of the issue that I'd raised. Now, I I've made multiple videos about this. It's been reported in the press a little bit as well. If what I was saying wasn't true, Dr. Colin Morrison would have got a lawyer by now, long, long ago, to come and challenge it and, and defend himself. But he hasn't because he knows it is absolutely true. You can go and read his dissertation for yourself. Yes, and some of the, 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 the darker, more troubling areas that uh, the UK column has reported on over the years includes uh, the, the, the sexual exploitation of uh, children with disabilities mm -hmm. who um, are sadly targeted uh, by predators because of their difficulties in communicating and uh, hence their difficulties in forming witness against the predator for their criminal behavior. So yeah. the, the whole area of that he's, that he's writing about um, is one where the, the need for safeguarding is actually in the strongest. Um, and the need for barriers between uh, these children and those who would harm them is the strongest. So to see him suggesting these barriers should be removed is, is, very, is very troubling indeed. Just on that issue of, of sex education and uh, pupils with learning difficulties, I don't know if you're aware of, of a bit of research I did about a year ago. Uh, education Scotland ran some, an, a webinar about sex education for pupils with, with special needs. And I managed to sneak in it after a few unsuccessful attempts. I managed to get in and listen to what was being said. And one of the things they were saying, for example, is sometimes when a teacher is massaging a pupil, the pupil can become sexually aroused. So therefore, I, mean, I would hope what's coming next would be, <clears throat> therefore, teachers don't massage pupils. But they said, so if a pupil's becoming sexually aroused because a teacher is massaging them, perhaps the teacher should consider changing their technique. What? And then they also went on to talk about how, um, sorry to have to talk about these things, but sometimes you need to call a spade a spade to communicate what I'm talking about. It was saying sometimes pupils with, uh, with special needs are sort of unable to reach a climax while masturbating. So they need some help. And so the teacher considered the possibility of, sort of providing a vibrating aids to pupils in order to help them in this regard. Uh, and this was, this was in the training. And who did they say that? They said this training that received some advice from Colin about it. I assume that Colin is Colin Morrison. I'm pretty sure it would be. So that's it. That's how it's um, coming to fruition in, in training for sex education in, in special schools. Mm. Well, if we could, if we could uh, uh, close here, uh, Richard, with a, a little uh, review of how, um, how things have been going for the Scottish Family Party. Um, I, I, 
I would say that from what I've seen that you've made a big impact in terms of in terms of activism, in terms of getting information out and in terms of campaigning. Uh, but what has it been like in terms of recruitment and votes and uh, all of these uh, things which are essential to the life of a political party? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, we are a political party. We're, you know, we're not a campaigning group disguised as a political party. Our objective is to get MSPs into the Scottish Parliament. When you imagine that, that would turn things upside down and liven things up very significantly. So that's our target. Uh, we're very new. The media will, will ignore us completely unless they think they've got a bad news story about us. Social media companies are set against us as well. So communication is a challenge. But a lot of people talk to each other, though. They haven't quite found a way of stopping that yet. People talk to each other and word spreads. So our membership's growing. We just appointed uh, five new branch chairmen uh, recently. So I think we've got 14 or 15 branches around Scotland. And that's part of our preparation for future elections to get candidates. In the council elections this year, we had 84 candidates around the country that we were very, very uh, pleased with. In the Scottish election the year before, we got 0.6% of the vote. In the council election this year, we average over everywhere we had a candidate, we got 1.35% of the votes. Uh, so that had more than doubled over that time. Westminster election in a couple of years, you know, if we could get you know, 2 or 3%, that would be brilliant. We'd like to have a candidate in every constituency. We'd like to overtake Alba. Not because they're like our arch nemesis. It's just they're party number six in Scotland. We're party number seven. If we overtake them, then we become the biggest party not in the parliament. The election last year, they were miles ahead of us. The election this year, they were not much ahead of us at all, despite far, far more media coverage and far, far uh, more money. So we're, we're, we're creeping up on them with that. And then two years after the Westminster election will be the Scottish election. Again, that will, so we'll be all out there to try and get an MSP or two into the parliament on the regional list system. The regional list system is what really gives us a chance of gaining representation in the parliament. The Westminster election, that, that, that's, a, that's like a, a publicity campaign, really. We're, we're not going to get anyone elected, apart from maybe, you know, across the Highlands and Islands. Um, so for most of Scotland, that's a publicity campaign. But then the Scottish election in 2026, that's when we hope to make a breakthrough and see Scottish Family Party MSPs in the Parliament. And just imagine it. Well, that would be, that would be quite something, because you mentioned briefly the Scottish Conservative Party. Um, and of course, they are, like Conservative parties everywhere, are showing themselves to be unable to regain lost ground. Um, they can't conserve women's toilets. What can they conserve? They don't seem ever to take a principled stand. It's always to be a break on the leftward movement, but never a reversal of it. It's, it's the nature of them. Um, and that's visible. I think you mentioned it in context of, of uh, the, the no-pray zones around, um, around the abortion clinics. What's, what's the Conservatives' policy on this? Nothing. Uh, not, a sing, not a single Conservative MSP has spoken out on the issue. There's only, the only MSP in the Parliament who's expressed a different view has been John Mason. And he's surely hanging by a thread as an SNP MSP. He's mm. been formally warned by them, but then he's kept on saying the same things. So uh, I suspect with him they'll maybe just let him go let him carry on till the next election, then deselect him or retires or whatever, rather than having a big fuss. But the Conservative Party are hopeless. And as you say, they drag their heels over everything that comes along. Like the Gender Recognition Act reform. I mean, the whole idea of gender recognition is nonsense. But... So the Conservatives will vote against it. But I mean, their equalities spokeswoman yesterday, she said something like, no one denies the importance of uh, you know, progressing transgender rights. No one denies the importance of progressing transgender rights. That's the conservative. So what they're trying to do, they vote against it, but they're not really opposing the, the fundamental principle. They're just saying that this particular bill isn't quite right. Same with hate speech. They all voted against the, the hate speech legislation. But if you listen to the committee, they're all saying, oh yeah, well, hate speech legislation, we all want it. Yeah, we all agree with that. It's just this particular version isn't quite right. So they drag their heels, even though they don't really oppose it. But then two or three years later, if you say to them, you know, how come you oppose that thing? And they say, oh, oh, it was just my 
was just my constituents' route to me. I was just representing their views. Obviously, obviously, I never had a problem with it. So ultimately, like you say, they never go back and solve any problems. They just drag their heels a little bit over whatever issue comes up next. But on two of the issues, like the buffer zones around abortion clinics and the conversion therapy ban, they're not even dragging their heels on those. They've, uh, they've jumped on the bandwagon completely. Okay. Well, it would certainly transform things, Richard, if you were in there um, making, making speeches in the Scottish Parliament. Uh, like Ron Paul in America, you might have to get used to losing votes where uh, the other side has 119 and you have one. Uh, but uh, the, 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 the change that would be brought about simply by having an opposing viewpoint actually heard would be uh, entirely positive. And uh, so I wish you all the best in that. Thank you very much for uh, your time today and for writing for the UK column. I understand there's another, another article by you about to be published soon. There's one going through the system. Yes, sir. Well, a pleasure to speak to you as ever. And I look forward to chatting again sometime. Lovely. Thank you very much for your time, Richard. Uh, until next time, uh, I hope things uh, continue to, uh, to go well in terms of your, all your activism and, uh, on, and particularly uh, the information which you're, which you're finding out about, about what the Scottish system is actually teaching and uh, the ideas and personalities that are underpinning it. This is vital information. So thank you very much for all of that work. Until next time, goodbye.